Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, an update on chronic wasting disease in Minnesota, an affordable housing project at Fort Snelling's Upper Post, and a commentary on the Gray Wolves of Isle Royale. But first, homelessness in the metro has been in the spotlight recently with high-profile encampments in the Twin Cities, but statewide, 67 of 87 counties do not have fixed-site shelters. The Minnesota Coalition for the Homeless is hoping to change that this legislative session, and they're calling for a $15 million increase in the emergency services program to help those in need statewide. I recently spoke with the coalition's Senta Leff about the group's mission. The Minnesota Coalition for the Homeless is a public policy and advocacy organization. We're a statewide member-based organization with about 150 members and who are included in our coalition, and they are found in every legislative district in the state. So we're truly statewide, um, and we exist to work upstream and create uh, the systems and resources that are necessary to end this totally solvable problem of homelessness in Minnesota. Um, We set a legislative agenda uh, every year um, and have actually just set our first two-year legislative agenda to um, coincide with the biennium. And uh, we also, we lead a a campaign called uh, Homes for All, and we do that with over 200 other partnering organizations. But one of the things that the Minnesota Coalition for the Homeless brought to the Homes for All table this year is a $15 million increase to the emergency shelter program here in Minnesota. Um, We advocate for housing resources across the full housing continuum in Minnesota. So everything from prevention to emergency services to transitional or subsidized living all the way to affordable home ownership opportunities. But this year, um, we felt that the time was right to make our biggest and boldest ask of the legislature to increase the emergency shelter program. Given what we see before us and um, what I think fewer people see is a statewide issue of um, a skyrocketing unsheltered population in our state. And how did you arrive at that $15 million figure? Yeah, it's um, it's both an art and a science. Uh, the existing funding here in the state of Minnesota for the emergency shelter program is less than $1 million. It's um, eight. for the entire state of Minnesota. So we knew that it needed to be a significant increase. Um, There are only 20 counties in the state of Minnesota that have a fixed site shelter, um, and even those need additional capacity and services. So we're coming in with a bold ask, and we'll um, encourage our lawmakers to give it the attention that it deserves. You know, the Minneapolis homeless encampment and maybe to a lesser extent the St. Paul homeless encampment were relatively highly publicized throughout the summer and continue to be. Is that challenging for you folks in terms of trying to get money for places elsewhere in the state or at least raise awareness? It's been um, a heartbreakingly wonderful opportunity for housing advocates. Certainly no one wants um, 
the reality that has been placed before us um, to be true uh, in any community in Minnesota. Um, but the Franklin Hiawatha encampment specifically, or the Wall of Forgotten Natives, as some call it, has elevated the need for accessible emergency shelter. Um, we consider this act to be an incredible um, display of self-governance and organization and determination. There are more than 17 different tribes represented in that encampment. Um, and together, they have really forced all of us, at least here in the metro, to face the reality of homelessness. And they've revealed what no one can any longer pretend does not exist. That's true to a slightly lesser extent in St. Paul. What I think is often missing from the conversation is that this is truly a statewide problem, um, and then that requires statewide solutions. So I often say to people, you know, just because you live 200 miles from an emergency shelter, it doesn't mean that you don't need one. And when we're interacting with lawmakers who represent rural communities and who might not have come to fully understand what living without an emergency shelter looks like, we tell stories about how in rural communities where the nearest emergency shelter is just that, hundreds of miles away, people are getting really creative um, in order to stay warm and survive through the winter in particular. So we hear stories about people sleeping in fish houses scattered across you know, our 10,000 frozen lakes. Um, I've heard stories from parents who have put their young children to bed in heated dog houses after the lights are turned off on rural properties. And I've heard stories about people sneaking into local hospital beds or walking 24-7 Walmarts until the sun comes up. So um, housing instability is a real and urgent crisis across our state. But the 20 counties that with of our 87 that have that fixed site shelter are unnecessarily burdened um, and also create a system that forces people who need it the most to relocate and further disrupt, further disrupt their lives for a chance to gain access in a neighboring county. Um, but these emergency shelters are a final last resort for an urgent problem and people certainly only ac access them as, um, as a last resort. Um, the uh, lack of investment in emergency shelter is beginning to really show um, the rate of unsheltered Minnesotans um, is skyrocketing. So, you know, people who may have in other years or in other circumstances been able to find some place to rest their head, um, uh, it doesn't look that way for them anymore. Our shelters are backlogged. They're filled to capacity every night. And like I said, in the vast majority of the states, there isn't a, a place to be found in hundreds of miles. Thank you to my guest, Senta Leff, with the Minnesota Coalition for the Homeless. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Don't you wish that getting your child to eat right, move more, and spend less time in front of a screen could be as easy as pushing a button? It might not be that simple, but you do have more power than you know. And you can maximize that power with proven strategies, tips, and tools from the National Institutes of Health's We Can, or Ways to Enhance Children's Activity and Nutrition program. 
We Can offers all kinds of resources, including fun recipes and activities the family can do together to show you the way to live a healthier lifestyle. We're not saying it's easy. We are saying that it can be done. Take the first step today. Call 1-866-359-3226 for a free We Can Parents Handbook. And be sure to visit the We Can website at wecan.nhlbi.nih.gov for free information, too. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The DNR announced this week two December deer hunts as part of intensified chronic wasting disease management efforts. Tasha Radel has more. Hunters can participate in two special deer hunts to help limit the spread of chronic wasting disease in wild deer in southeastern Minnesota. Here to explain the efforts is Lou Cornicelli, the DNR's wildlife research manager. We have this focal point of infection around Preston, Minnesota, um, where we have uh, um, both females and males that we found uh, to be infected by chronic wasting disease. Radiating out from that central location, we're seeing males um, getting picked up with the disease. So um, our concern is this, this persistent infection of disease around Preston and the possibility of the disease being spread out um, into other areas. So um, we're kind of rethinking how we're, go- how we're approaching this disease and looking at management from the perspective of, of a Uh, a more persistent infection uh, with the hope of or the goal of not letting it spread and become established uh, in other places. So the first thing we'll do is a special hunt. There's two special hunts, actually, December 21st to 23rd and December 28th to 30th um, in a fairly broad area. And we'll run it very similar to the way we've run uh, our hunts before, where surveillance will be mandatory uh, for all sex and age classes carcasses can't leave the zone until a not detected test is, is reported. We'll have some limited hunting on Forestville State Park and Pin Oak Prairie uh, Scientific and Natural Area. So our, really the goal would be to uh, get folks down into this area who have permission to hunt private land, obviously, um, and harvest deer so we can hopefully identify uh, more positives and limit the spread uh, of the disease. So those are kind of the the highlights in the next few weeks. Um, Post-season, we're going to be working out a landowner shooting permit program. We've done that in the past as well. We'll contact landowners around uh, infected animals and offer them permits uh, to remove deer. We'll contract on a late-season agency culling project with the United States Department of Agriculture. We've done that before as well. So we're starting to work with interested landowners, and we're trying to build support uh, among landowners to, to allow us uh, uh, onto the property to remove deer. Um, again, goals are, are density reductions and, and also um, hopefully removing positive animals and limiting, limiting spread down the road. So fairly aggressive actions, I think, as we move forward with this disease and in the hopes of containing it. Um, our, our, our great concern is that the disease becomes established in our deer population and 20 or 30 or 40 years from now, we're, we look a lot like Wisconsin, which is seeing um, high incidences of disease, and, and at some level they'll have, or sometimes they'll have population uh, level impacts. Lou, I understand there's going to be a public meeting coming up. Can you tell us a little bit about that? We have scheduled a public meeting on Tuesday, December 18th at the Preston School. Um, basically, the and our staff will give a presentation on what we know to date, what we're planning to do. Um, talk about updates to our, our CWD management plan, and then also answer questions and try and get 
everyone on the same page. And uh, as part of working with our public, uh, we're, we're doing two surveys, uh, one, of, one of deer hunters in the southeast and then one of landowners. And what we really want to do is get an assessment uh, of the attitudes related to the disease and our management response, see how people feel about uh, risk management and uh, beliefs about risk and hunting behavior, and also talk about different types of programs that might help us get um, onto private land. And we'll do that both with hunters and landowners. And, uh, and the landowner piece, obviously, it's key because this disease is found on private land. So one of the things we struggle with as an agency is that we can implement regulations that we think will work, but if we don't have access to private lands and people aren't willing to um, partake in those opportunities, then disease can become established and spread. So uh, we hired someone last summer um, who's working specifically with, um, with landowners and deer hunters in the area. We have a good relationship with our deer groups uh, down there, and they're working with landowners and really trying to get on the same page. And For more information on the two special deer hunts, you can head to the DNR's website at mndnr.gov. Thanks to my guest, Lou Cornicelli, DNR Wildlife Research Manager. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. Minnesota Matters will return after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters, a project to turn 26 historic buildings at Fort Snelling's Upper Post into affordable housing is moving forward after the DNR recently signed an agreement with housing developer Dominium. The DNR's Larry Peterson once served as director of Fort Snelling State Park and has been part of the team leading a push for the restoration of the Upper Post for the last decade. MNN's J.W. Cox talked with Peterson about the impact of the project and why the Upper Post is worth saving. First and foremost, it's a national historic landmark, uh, arguably one of the most important national historic landmarks in the state of Minnesota. And the land was granted to the state of Minnesota in 1971 under a program called the Federal Lands to Parks Program. And uh, that requires that the property be preserved and the buildings not uh, torn down. Um, the uh, initial problem uh, that DNR struggled with for many years was that that program required that uh, the area and the buildings be used for recreational purposes. And when you have 26 old military buildings, it's, it's hard to use them all for recreational purposes. Uh, but we were able to get that that uh, program changed so they now can be used uh least for long-term uses like affordable housing, and that's what we have pursued with Dominium. When you look at these buildings, obviously the construction built in the late 1800s for the most part, and they have survived a lot over the years through their different uses on the military side, and as you mentioned, since 1971 as part of the parks. What's the condition of them, and what lies ahead for the contractors going in to repurpose these? How much of an undertaking is this to get these up to where they can be used for this purpose of affordable housing? Not the easiest task in the world. Uh, it takes some pretty good architects and designers and uh, good contractors. Uh, fortunately, Dominium is experienced in, in this type of construction. Uh, they were the successful developer of the uh, Schmidt Brewery site in uh, St. Paul and also the Pillsbury A-Mill in Minneapolis. So they've got uh, pretty good credentials in, in terms of uh, reuse of historic sites. Uh, these buildings have got... Uh, you know, some crumbling brick and some uh, some roofs, uh, actually slate roofs that have been on for over a hundred years, which is amazing. They're still surviving. 
I thought it was an interesting note. The upper post specifically was one of the most endangered historic sites in the nation at one point. What made it so endangered, and how can this revitalize things? What made it endangered was that there was basically no funding to preserve the buildings. We were kind of putting Band-Aids on the best we could and doing um, finding whatever money we could by scraping out various accounts at the DNR, but it was, certainly wasn't enough to restore the buildings. Um, so it was in danger of falling down. In fact, one building, Building 63, did did collapse in 2006 because the roof uh, had too many penetrations. The floors collapsed and then the walls caved in. Uh, and Fortunately, we found uh, the legislature appropriated the money in 2008 and 2010 for emergency building stabilization uh, that went to the Hennepin STS Homes program. So we had uh, inmate uh, crews out here supervised by a uh, journeyman carpenter, and they did tuck pointing on the buildings, they did roof repair, uh, they boarded up windows. Uh, they did a marvelous job. They worked out here for about eight years and kind of tightened things up and kept the building standing for another 10 or 20 years. Is there a hope that this project specifically can revitalize it in the consciousness of Minnesotans and people elsewhere as to how important a role this particular fort and this part of it played in Minnesota history? Well, we certainly hope so. It's going to be fabulous to see families living out here again. This was uh, largely a residential site for, for soldiers as they were training and being inducted and being shipped off. Um, so it's, it's going to be really good to see people living out here again. Uh, Dominium is working very closely with us on developing an interpretive plan uh, that will tell the stories of, of all these buildings, and there's a lot of stories. Uh, the Buffalo Soldiers were here, the Military Intelligence Service Language School, the Japanese Language School uh, in World War II was here, and there's a lot of wonderful stories to tell. So the hope is we can we can adaptively reuse the site, get people living in in these buildings, and then continue to tell the stories for future generations for a long time here. Did you ever zero in on a favorite story in your time there, specifically the five years you were working there uh, at the park <laughs> when it came to the Upper Post, or just too many? I'll, I'll tell you about an experience I had that was fabulous. Uh, I, w I was driving around a few years back here and uh, kind of patrolling the site and looking around, and I, I came across a car that was looked a little lost, and there was uh, an elderly couple in the car. And I stopped to see what they were up to, and the woman said, uh, well, you may not believe this, but I was the last baby born in the hospital here in 1946, and we're here to just look, look at the site and look at where we used to live. So I showed her and her husband around. Uh, it's just a, a wonderful visit. And there's so many family stories like that out here, uh, and just to be able to touch some of the people that lived out here once upon a time is, was really fun for me over the years. Does this represent a finish line in your mind at the very least to, to get to this point, or where does the finish line now stand for this <laughs> overall project? What we signed was a redevelopment agreement, and that's certainly a, a huge milestone for me. This is kind of the one, one of the last un, big unfinished things in my career, so it feels pretty good to see it moving forward. We're very happy to have a capable partner like Dominium, and uh, we've got a very good working relationship. Uh, they're looking to uh, break ground hopefully next fall sometime. There's a lot of architectural design and engineering design that has to go on over the next few months, and uh, they've got a good team assembled. Uh, once we get the design work done and the historic review done this uh, this winter, 
and we actually sign a lease uh, for 99 years next uh, next summer. We'll be signing a lease for 99 years for this site so people can, can live here for the next 99 years, and that will really, really kind of hit you when we do that. So I'm looking forward to that. The completed project to be called Upper Post Flats is expected to open in 2021, and first rental preference will be given to military veterans and their families. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Who might you save? Your mother, your father, your husband, uncle, aunt, son. Learn fast. F-A-S-T. The sudden signs of a stroke and you could save. Your friend, your best friend, teacher, boss, coach. F. Face drooping. A. Arm weakness. S. Speech difficulty. T. Time to call 911. F-A-S-T. Face arm speech time. That's F. Face drooping. A. Arm weakness. S. Speech difficulty. T. Time to call 911. The sooner they get to the hospital, the sooner they'll get treatment. And that can make a remarkable difference in the recovery of your neighbor, the waiter, a fellow shopper, a total stranger, grandmother, grandfather. So learn FAST, the sudden signs of a stroke, then pass it on, because you never know who might save you. Your wife, your colleague, teammate, mother. Spot a stroke fast. Visit strokeassociation.org. Brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The National Park Service has started transplanting gray wolves to Isle Royale to boost their faltering population there and to reduce burgeoning numbers of moose. But MNN's Bill Werner tells us there have been some problems with the rollout. Isle Royale, the 50-mile-long spit of land, only a short ferry ride off Grand Portage, which by rights should belong to Minnesota, but is actually in Michigan's domain, that still mostly wild island up until quite recently had a sustaining population of gray wolves. But of late, their numbers have dwindled to the point where only two wolves remained. A father and his daughter, who both share the same mother and their uh, incestuous efforts, did not produce a viable offspring. But forgive me, I'm assigning human values to a basic function of nature. The National Park Service in recent months has captured wild wolves, but realized only limited success moving them to Isle Royale. Of three from Michigan's Upper Peninsula, one, a female, died early after capture because of what experts believe was a problem with the way she was sedated for transport. Officials also captured four wolves on the Grand Portage Chippewa Reservation in far northeastern Minnesota. One of them, a male, died after being on Isle Royale for only a short time. So out of seven, two so far have not made it. One thing that we keep forgetting about is the wolf is a very social animal. And in order to be a social animal, the animal has to have emotions, has to have attachments and bonds with other wolves. And so it's possible that that wolf could have died of a broken heart. That's Dr. Maureen Hackett with Howling for Wolves, a group that fought hard against Minnesota's for now rescinded wolf hunting season. Dr. Hackett has a suggestion for the National Park Service. Rather than trapping wild wolves and transplanting them to Isle Royale, instead release wolves there which are currently in human captivity. We owe the wolf a great deal for all that the wolf goes through. And captive wolves, we can understand their lineage better. We can know what their disease potential is. We can understand their genetics. And we don't have to randomly capture wild wolves and risk breaking up 
pack families. We should consider this because in this world of endangered species, rewilding captive animals is an important part of conservation. Dr. Hackett has an interesting point. It has me wondering about whether the rewilding of humans might be in order. The release of the captives, not those in prison, but all the rest of us. I think about this when an old ape at the zoo is staring at me with a quizzical expression on his face, and at least for a moment, I wonder which side of the bars I'm on. The monkeys stand for honesty, giraffes are insincere, and the elephants are kindly, but they're dumb. Orangutans are skeptical of changes in their cages And the zookeeper is very fond of rum Zebras are reactionaries and antelopes are missionaries Pigeons blocked in secrecy and hamsters turn on frequently What the cats will have to come and see at Henry David Thoreau had something to say about this very topic. He wrote, I confess that I am astonished at the power of endurance, to say nothing of the moral insensibility, of my neighbors who confine themselves to shops and offices the whole day for weeks and months, aye, and years almost altogether. I know not what manner of stuff they are of, sitting there now at 3 o'clock in the afternoon as if it were 3 o'clock in the morning. Bonaparte may talk of the 3 o'clock in the morning courage, but it is nothing to the courage which can sit down cheerfully at this hour in the afternoon over against oneself whom you have known all the morning to starve out a garrison to whom you are bound by such strong ties of sympathy. How's that for getting bored with yourself? Thoreau goes on to say, I wonder that about this time... There is not a general explosion heard up and down the streets, scattering a legion of antiquated and house-bred notions and whims to the four winds for an airing. Those four winds blow us many ways in our lives, but we rarely allow them to push us far off the course we have predetermined, and all that resistance pops out in strange ways. Bill Werner on the Minnesota News Network. Thank you for that report, Bill. That's going to do it for this week. Thank you for listening, and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.